From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. George Floyd! George Floyd! George Floyd! The video of George Floyd dying under the knee of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is at the center of a murder and manslaughter trial which is scheduled to kick off no sooner than Tuesday, March 9th. The question at the heart of the case is whether what millions of people saw on video was in fact a murder or just a tragic accident. In advance of what very well could be the highest profile court case since Rodney King or O.J. Simpson, officials in Minnesota have spent the last eight months preparing for another wave of civil unrest. Barricades and fences have been erected in front of government buildings, and thousands of police officers and National Guard have been called in as backup. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry says law enforcement has vowed to preserve people's right to assemble and protest, but also to keep the peace. Good morning. Uh, this will be the first of very regular briefings that you'll be receiving as we head into the trial of Derek Chauvin. As we've seen in so many other cities, as we lead into trials involving black men that have been killed uh, by the police officers, there's great frustration, there's anxiety, uh, and there's trauma. We anticipate that trauma increasing as we get closer into jury deliberations uh, and the verdict. And we believe that it is on us to honor the magnitude of this moment and ensure that our families in this city feel safe. The three other officers involved in the case, Tao, Kang, and Lane, are charged with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. Their separate trial is scheduled for August 23rd. With jury selection in the Chauvin case scheduled to begin on Tuesday, potential jurors will be brought into a socially distanced courtroom to begin the process of whittling the pool down to 12 jurors and four alternates. Jordan Rubin is a legal reporter that's been tracking the case for Bloomberg Law. Jordan, welcome to the pod. Hey, Adam. So, Jordan, for the listeners who may have forgotten the details, could you just remind us what happened on May 25th? Sure. Minneapolis police responded to a 911 call that someone used counterfeit money at a convenience store. They arrested George Floyd. One of the officers on the scene was Derek Chauvin. He's the one who kneeled on Floyd's neck for some nine minutes as Floyd was face down on the pavement. As we know, Floyd died. We can see what happened because a bystander recorded what became viral video, sparking worldwide protests against racism and police brutality. And now, Chauvin is standing trial for second-degree felony murder and second-degree manslaughter, and he may face a third-degree murder charge as well. And before you became a reporter, Jordan, you actually worked as a prosecutor for a while and therefore have some insights into criminal procedure. So can you just give us a primer on what to expect during jury selection? So what the judge and the parties try to do is get to a point where they can come to a jury of 12 people who they think can decide the case fairly. Obviously, both sides have a different view of how to get there, and they'll be looking for different things in the jury, people with different sympathies. Each side gets a predetermined number of strikes that they can use, which means they're allowed to prevent prospective jurors from sitting on the jury. Now, you're allowed to use those strikes for whatever reason you want, except for racially discriminatory reasons. Obviously, the issue of race takes on a huge dimension in this case, but when it comes to what are called for cause challenges, there's an unlimited number of those, meaning if 
the judge agrees that the person on the jury or who wants to be on the jury simply can't be fair. And so we don't know how many prospective jurors they're going to have to go through in order to get to that number where they can actually seat a jury. And I would expect they're going to have to go through quite a number of people because there are people who are going to have strong opinions about this. And they've set aside three weeks to pick the jury. So that's a hint that they know it's going to be a tough task. And after jury selection, the prosecution has to make its case. So what do we know about the arguments Floyd's attorneys are going to make? And what do you think Chauvin's defense will be? Sure. So really what it comes down to for the prosecution is showing what's called causation. They need to show a line from point A to point B. Point A being Chauvin's actions and point B being Mr. Floyd's death. And the defense's arguments, what it's going to try and do is kind of try and muddy up that line, poke holes in that line. And so one really important way is going to come to this medical evidence where the defense most likely is going to point to things like Floyd's drug use, drugs being in his system when he died, his alleged resisting arrest, which is going to go to showing that the officer's actions were reasonable, Floyd's other health issues, heart conditions. So they're going to try and poke holes in that simple seeming narrative of the prosecution that what else could this be but a murder. And what about the charges themselves? Chauvin was already facing a charge of second-degree murder as well as second-degree manslaughter, and last Friday, a Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled that the judge in Chauvin's trial, Peter Cahill, must reconsider whether to add a third-degree murder charge as well, which carries a sentence up to 25 years in prison. So does having multiple charges on the table give prosecutors additional lanes to win a possible conviction here? Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. As it stands now with the second-degree murder charge and the second-degree manslaughter charge, the the prosecution essentially has two chances at convincing a jury that a crime was committed here. Now with this third-degree charge, it has three chances. And something that happens a lot in these trials is that juries will compromise, especially in tough cases. They're going to get a lot of instructions from the judge, lengthy instructions about how to do their job of applying the facts to the law. But sometimes what it comes down to is these decisions are really hard. And sometimes jurors will look at a case and say, we think something happened here. We're not sure if it's murder, but we don't want to let this guy off completely. And that is where a compromise charge could come into play. And as it stands with these two charges, that compromise charge, so to speak, would be the manslaughter charge. If prosecutors can reintroduce this third-degree murder charge, gives them essentially a compromise verdict as to murder. And so then prosecutors can walk away saying they obtained a murder conviction, even if they're unsuccessful in proving the second-degree charge, so long as they prove the third-degree charge. Jordan Rubin is a legal reporter for Bloomberg Law. Jordan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Adam. In previous criminal cases involving the death of a black person at the hands of police officers, even getting prosecutors to bring charges, let alone walk away with a guilty verdict, has been extremely rare. See Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Michael Brown, and on and on. In the case of George Floyd, however, many legal experts feel that the jury selection could be even more important to the final outcome than how the attorneys argue the merits of the case itself. 
Jury selection is, is extraordinarily complicated anyway. Now let's contemplate any normal criminal defense case. Let's overlap the pandemic on it and let's make maybe the craziest case since O.J. Simpson all in the same room happening at the same time. In some ways, this is far more complicated than anything we've ever seen. Jack Rice is a Minneapolis-based defense attorney. So in terms of legal background, what's your interest in this case? Well, I'm a former prosecutor in Minnesota. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I have been for more than 20 years. I've tried a lot of cases in this state. I've tried a lot of cases in Minneapolis. I know a lot of the players. Given the extreme amount of public interest this case has attracted, as well as the viral video, plus the months of protests and demonstrations, and the fact that the trial's being held in Minneapolis in Hennepin County, Jack, do you think the attorneys in this case are going to be able to find anyone who says, I've never heard of George Floyd? And does that represent a problem? People know about this case in Azerbaijan. <laughs> they know about this case in San Diego. They know about it in South America. And so people are going to be coming into it with a lot of preconceived notions. And so the purpose is to weed out those who have already made their decisions, those who are biased for obvious reasons. Now, let's mix that up with the concept that if I'm a defense attorney, what I really want is I want people completely biased who would actually support my contention, my theory of the case, my theme of the case, who would find my client not guilty. So it's easy to say we want unbiased people. I don't think that's generally true. So if I'm prosecuting this case, I want somebody who's a law and order person who will say, hold on, let's go after this guy. If I'm defending, I want somebody the other direction who's going to say, hold on, this is a completely different animal and they can't possibly prove their case. And then, yes, that's, that's, that's the perfect person for me. Would changing the venue of the trial to somewhere else in Minnesota help the court impanel a, shall we say, less tainted pool of potential jurors? It's a wonderful question because I understand why you would want a venue change. And in fact, Peter Cahill, the judge in this case, addressed this issue directly. What he essentially said was, where do you send it? I mean, where do you send this case that it, they haven't heard about it? And he's true in that sense. One of the other issues that he addressed, though, specifically was the security concern. And if you look at Hennepin County, Hennepin County is probably in the best position of all of the counties in Minnesota to deal with the onslaught that's coming at this. Now, imagine how it would be if you're dealing with jurors, not just in, in massive groups, because you usually are doing jury selection in waves, or even in sometimes you'll bring in well, you'll bring it in excess of 20 or more at a time. You may very likely have to go one at a time in a case like this. Now, imagine all of them wrapped behind um, concrete barriers, fences, razor wire, 2,000 Minnesota National Guard, and 1,100 police officers from across the state all surrounding you saying, no, 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 just relax. You're going to be fine. Yeah, good luck with that. As you've pointed out, finding people who haven't already formed their own opinions on this case is going to be a tough task for both sides. In order to speed up the process, however, would-be jurors are being asked to complete a 16-page questionnaire, including obvious questions such as whether they have a family member who works in law enforcement or if they have ever been arrested. 
But the questions also delve into peripheral issues, such as whether they participated in any marches or demonstrations last summer, or what are their feelings about the Black Lives Matter movement. So we've already stipulated earlier in the show that attorneys can't strike a juror for reasons of race. But is striking someone for supporting Black Lives Matter any different? When picking a jury, there are all sorts of things you can use to determine which people you want on that jury. Now, the real concern here is that if what you find is that one side, in this case, it likely would be the defense, if the defense starts removing anybody because they happen to support Black Lives Matter, and you find that everybody who happens to be black on that panel is being removed, there could be a real question about whether they're being removed, not because of Black Lives Matter, but because of race. And race is an unacceptable reason. If I'm on the other other side of this, I will climb up on the bench screaming about that issue because there are certain things you can't do. And removing people because of race is one of them. Jack, thanks so much for speaking with me today. No problem, Adam. Great to talk with you. In case you're wondering what kinds of other questions potential jurors are being asked, we've included a link to the full 16-page questionnaire in our show notes. Beyond the issue of bias and preconceived opinions about either George Floyd or Derek Chauvin, others claim that this notion of jury impartiality is a bit overbaked. Glenn Kirshner spent 30 years as a federal prosecutor, including a stint as assistant U.S. attorney in the D.C. office, where, among other things, he served as chief of the homicide section. He now teaches criminal justice at George Washington University, as well as serving as a legal analyst for NBC. Yeah, I think there's a popular misconception that if you know anything about the case, you are somehow disqualified from serving as a juror. That's not true. A case like this, the murder of George Floyd, which captured not only um, the nation's attention, but the world's attention, most prospective jurors will have heard of it. But the key is when you're questioning jurors in voir dire, which is just a fancy term translated, it means speak the truth. And we try to get the truth out of jurors to see if they can fairly and impartially sit in judgment of any given case. So jurors will inevitably have heard about the George Floyd case. The key is if they can agree to set aside, to try to move out of their mind any publicity, anything they may have heard, anything they think they know about the murder of George Floyd, and not let it enter into their decision-making process. Last summer, a three-judge panel for the First Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the death sentence of Jokar Shanaev, one of the brothers involved in the Boston Marathon bombing, due to insufficient attention paid to potential juror bias during selection. So, Glenn, obviously that case also generated an unprecedented amount of media coverage. So do you think there's a risk of something similar happening on the George Floyd case? You know, jury selection is only as good and as fair and as thorough as the judge makes it. And, you know, judges like prosecutors, like police officers, like defense attorneys range from the good, the bad, the ugly and and everywhere in between. Let's hope this judge takes very seriously 
his responsibility to make sure you impanel a fair jury. Because, you know, as a prosecutor, I always had to be concerned about the rights of the defendant, because the last thing I wanted to do was win a conviction, but have some fatal flaw in the trial such that on appeal, it would get reversed. We would be back in the trial court all over again, trying the case anew a second time. That is a really difficult circumstance, not just for a prosecutor, but for a victim, the victim's family and the community. So I had to make sure the defendant was getting a fair uh, shake during jury selection. However, as the prosecutor, I wanted to make sure we got a fair shake. The victim got a fair shake. The, the community got a fair shake. And so I was always looking to weed out jurors that I didn't think would give the government's evidence a fair shake. Judge Cahill is also deviating from standard Minnesota protocol by allowing cameras in the courtroom, in part because of the restrictions imposed by COVID-19. The trial will be broadcast and streamed for free on Court TV. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn and Jordan Rubin. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.